Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And I am looking forward to this next guest, not only because she is a personal friend of mine, but also really a powerhouse force when it comes to making change. This is Ms. Cheryl Ring, civil rights and consumer law attorney based out of Illinois. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me, it really means a lot. Yes, and it also means a lot to me when it comes to the fights that you are undertaking because you are making change for people. And I know right now you're fighting the Illinois Attorney General. Can you tell us about your lawsuit? So I have two lawsuits currently pending. One is against the ARDC, the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission. And they hand, they're basically the Attorney Licensing Board in Illinois. The other is against the the Winnebago County Circuit Clerk, it's a circuit court clerk in Illinois. And um, the crux of my lawsuit is right now, Illinois is one of the only states in the country that actually not only pro, not only does not prohibit discrimination by lawyers and judges on the basis of gender identity and expression, but also the rules expressly allow it. Um, and so one of the things that I've experienced is I have judges who stop hearings to request genital examination. I've had judges call my clients who are trans or gender nonconforming it. I've had opposing counsel bring motions to disqualify me or to for summary judgment on a case based on the gender identity that of my gender identity as a trans woman or the gender identity of a client I'm representing. I had a settlement conference where I was representing a non-binary client and the an opposing counsel refused to settle because in his his opinion was that it would incentivize the trans lifestyle. And this is this is par for the course practicing in Illinois. Um, the Illinois Attorney General intervened to defend the Winnebago County Circuit Clerk. The, the ARDC is representing itself. Um, and the ARDC's position has been that I have no standing to sue for their current ethics rules because transphobia by attorneys and judges does not create a cognizable injury. Um, and so I, I, I filed a response to that motion to dismiss. And I explained that what they're essentially saying is that they have the right to interpret the rules of professional conduct in a way that post Bostock, the Supreme Court decision, Bostock versus Clayton County last year, that said that discrimination against gay and trans people in housing and employment is unlawful under the Civil Rights Act. What they're doing is they are interpreting both, they're basically interpreting Bostock out of Illinois law. By saying we have the right to interpret the rules of professional conduct in such a way that judges and attorneys can act in a way that the Supreme Court just said that employers and housing providers cannot. And wow. there really is no legal basis for that. And what they're really doing is has a huge chilling effect on marginalized people practicing law. And one of the things I wrote in one of my briefs in the case was pointing out if it's true that a person who experiences discrimination that is essentially invited by the ARDC has no standing to fight that invitation to discriminate. You could have the ARDC mandate an all white, all cis, all male bar. And there is nothing anyone can do about it because no one has suffered an injury. That is essentially the argument they're making. That, so is, what, that's, yeah. um, that is absolutely upsetting and problematic. And I know you are very passionate about this, as am I in part, because it essentially it is a license they're saying that they have to engage in transphobia when you're just trying to do your job. 
And and so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about essentially where things are now with those lawsuits. Um, the Winnebago County Circuit Clerk, thankfully, they had um, they had been misgendering me and deadnaming me for almost four years. Um, and I had made several requests for them to not. They were altering my appearance forms to have my my and, and my legal name has been changed for several years. They were putting my old name. They were deadnaming me in court in court records. Um, and it took a lawsuit to make them stop. And the judge informed them that that was not acceptable. And thankfully, they stopped a couple of weeks ago. Um, the bigger issue right now is, and this is this that case was really the impetus. Um, because I have been dealing with this with this level of systematic discrimination for a long time. And that case was really the impetus for me to bring a case against the ARDC because one of the things that kept happening was I would experience this discrimination, my clients would experience this discrimination. I would end up in order to protect my clients. One of the things I have to go through in my intake interviews is saying, I am a trans attorney. I have to out myself and say, this is how your case may be impacted because attorneys can bring these motions, judges can make these decisions. Um, and when I had approached the ARDC a number of years ago about changing the rule, they told me not only did they tell me no, they did. They told me that they believed that they had a an interest in regulating the gender of the members of the Illinois bar because they're concerned that if they are disciplining someone, that person will simply transition to avoid discipline, which is huh. not a thing that ever happened. No, um, and the result is. Trans attorneys in Illinois are extremely rare, a lot rarer even than you see in Texas or Florida. And most other states have dealt with this a long time ago. Florida, for example, has had in their in their comments to their rules of professional conduct that the word that gender and sex discrimination prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender identity or expression. And that was their that was their position even before Bostock was decided. But after Bostock was decided, and this was still happening, I was still having judges make these comments. I was still having opposing counsel make these comments and bring these motions. And when the clerk, um, when the clerk was still dead naming me in court after I asked him to stop post postdoc, I said, this, this is not okay anymore. So as much as I'm very gratified that I was able to win the case against the clerk and establish you have to use my legal name on court documents and you do not have a right based on religious freedom to use a name that's not my legal name. It is very frustrating because right now the ARDC, the entity that gives me my law license is essentially saying that if I don't want to be misgendered or dead named or be told by an arbitration panel, I don't count as a person, that's a thing that happens, then I should simply resign from the bar. That is very disgusting, especially when it is a part of the justice system and it's telling you that all lives are equal under the law and that they are essentially should have the right to access justice. And they are telling you that as an attorney, they can discriminate against you, that they can mistreat you. You know, and a lot of people, I think, would like to think that Illinois is very progressive, you know, land of Lincoln mentality. But when we see the fact that the attorney general is willing to expend state resources to to essentially be able to continue to discriminate against you, it really makes you think twice about really what the leadership in a lot of states in our country what they are doing. I, um, essentially, what do you think people are missing? I think that there is a big difference between saying that you have, that you are welcoming to marginalized people, trans people in this case, and being willing to open doors to marginalized people. 
Um, it is very easy for progressive leaders or leaders who call themselves progressive to say, I stand with people who are marginalized, I, I will fight discrimination. It's something very different to say, I am willing to let people who are marginalized into spaces of power. And I think what I am seeing here is pushback against the idea of trans attorneys and trans judges. Um, there was a, a trans woman who was elected to a judgeship for the first time in Illinois about a year ago. And the discrimination that I saw in my cases actually got a lot worse after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is as trans people become more visible, the people in power, or even those who I self identify allies, are pushing back on. Uh, on our place in power. And I think that's really frustrating. And one of th- and that kind of goes to why I brought this case. Because if it was just about me, I'm a big girl, I can take it. But I don't want uh, the next generation of trans kids to not be able to grow up to be lawyers. And I do not want the next generation of trans kids to, when they become lawyers in Illinois, they experience this and I didn't make it easier for them. Because I refuse to leave them a bar that is the same, that, that treats that treats them the way that I am treated. That that's simply not acceptable to me. And worse than that, the people who sue in Illinois because their employers discriminated against them, because their housing providers discriminated against them, should expect I should deserve better than to walk into court and have a judge treat them the same way that they're suing about. That's not acceptable. No, it's not acceptable at all. And I know that essentially Illinois saying that it's unwilling to recognize transgender as a protected class. Uh, particularly when it concerns lawyers, that that essentially goes against the Supreme Court ruling that we talked about Bostick. But also too, uh, who is truly are in addition to you and individuals like you, but how would you say that the harm and the impact is being felt on a wider level uh, when it comes to individuals who have that intersectionality with regard to being trans and also maybe being black or brown? Uh, I will tell you that there are not no openly trans attorneys of color in the Chicago area that are willing to be openly trans in all aspects of their practice because of something like this. And what they essentially, the Illinois bar, as you know, Illinois is one of the most segregated states in the country. And the Illinois bar has had a a racism problem for a very long time. And you couple that with, we are not going to protect gender identity as a protected class. And you're essentially forcing so many people that I know to choose between being a black attorney and being a trans attorney, or being a brown attorney and being a trans attorney. And this is wrong. And the frustrating part about this is, the ARDC in, in comments that they've that their representatives have made to me, they view this as a good thing. They view this as positive because they have politicized transness to the point where it's something that they don't want to be in the courtroom. And that I think is deeply problematic because we should be providing equal justice to everyone. And yes. your beliefs on my right to exist is not does not belong there. No, it does not at all. And so quickly, can you tell people where they can help support? your lawsuits and your fight to make change so that everyone is treated equally and fairly under the Illinois court system. Uh, you can email Amy Bounds, B-O-W-N-E. She is the head of the Illinois Supreme Court Rules Committee. And she, uh, her email address is on the Illinois Supreme Court website. Tell her that gender identity discrimination should be prohibited in the state of Illinois for both attorneys, judges, and litigants. Yes, that is something you can do right now. It is Trans Awareness Week, so use your voice. You want progress, you say you're a progressive, well, push for change in this way. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining us today and also for the fight that you are fighting to make it a more just world for all of us.
Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And the conversation continues. I'm Adrian Lawrence, and now I am joined by award-winning historian and author of the new book, Until I Am Free, Fanny Lou Hamers, Hammers' Enduring Message to America, Keisha Blaine. Thanks for joining us, Keisha. Thanks so much for having me. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, I have been inspired by Fannie Lou Hamer for a very long time. I first learned about Hamer uh, as a senior in college. And since then, I've been thinking about her her life, her words. Uh, and I think over the last couple of years, particularly with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, I thought it was important to return to Hamer's story so that we can really begin to think through how her ideas are relevant for this current moment. And for a lot of people who are not familiar with Hamer and her journey and the impact she has, can you please educate our viewers on why this woman is so pivotal? Well, Fannie Lou Hamer was a civil rights activist. And in fact, she was a human rights activist. It's impossible to talk about black voting rights in the United States without centering Hamer's story. She was one of the key individuals who laid the groundwork for the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and I think most people who have ever heard of Hamer know about her in the context of 1964 when she gave a courageous speech at the Democratic National Convention. I'm sure that speech resonated as has all of her efforts and work. And so when it comes to your book, is there something about it that you really feel is going to be incredibly impactful for readers? Well, one of the things that I did in the book was I connected Hamer's story to the current moment. And so I draw parallels, for example, to Sandra Bland. I spoke about how Hamer similarly encountered state sanctioned violence. I draw connections to some of the challenges as it pertains to the Me Too movement or even the ongoing struggle you know, as we address poverty in the United States. So I think people will find the book useful because it gets them to draw the connections themselves and see how much Hamer's fight continues and how much we can learn from her. And when it comes to these, um, you know, these movements that she led and all of the interactions she was involved in that were so game changing, what do you think that we could learn from her without, of course, getting away too much for uh, those prospective readers out there? Well, I think it actually goes back to the title of the book. One of the things that Hamer said often was nobody's free until everybody's free. Or sometimes she would say it a different way. She would say whether you are black or white, you are not free until I am free. And I wanted to use that title for the book because I think it encapsulates this broader vision that is so relevant today. We have to see ourselves as connected to one another. Certainly in the context of the US, we have to see ourselves you know, connected as citizens of the US. But even more broadly, as humans, right? we have to think of the way that our lives are intertwined. And despite our differences, it's important, I think, for us to work together to make sure that we can all not only live in this nation, but particularly that we can all thrive in this nation. So Hamer's message of unity is really a powerful one. And just it gets us to think about the other person far more than we think of ourselves.
Yeah, I would definitely say that's something we need more of nowadays, especially as we're seeing with the coronavirus and trying to get people to get vaccinated, so on and so forth. But yes, exercising some self-awareness as more as are in addition to regard for those around us is very important. And so as you being an award-winning historian and essentially having this background of knowing how to research and dive in, where did you start when you said, hey, I wanna find out more information about Hamer and her journey? Well, I'm so glad that there are in fact several collections. So I was able to rely on two collections in particular of you know Hamer's writings, you know personal letters that that she you know would wrote would write to activists in the 1960s and 70s. I was able to draw upon those, but also I made good use of interviews. I you know interviewed folks who knew Hamer, who worked with Hamer. I also used historical newspapers. You know, I tried to pull together an array of sources in order to tell her story. And I have to say too that I'm indebted to a number of scholars who have also written on Hamer. I was able to reach out to them, and they provided support along the way. And so it really was a community effort, if you think about it that way. It sounds like it, and I guess it goes perfectly hand in hand with Hamer's essentially push that we all be interconnected and really reach out to one another. So it definitely sounds like you are putting her legacy into action. And as you really kind of dive in, I guess, what would you say is the legacy that she has left behind? Well, one of the things that really stands out to me with Hamer is what I describe in the book as her radical honesty. She's someone who really spoke truth to power. I know we say it often, but when you look at Hamer's life, she did not mince words. She would tell you like it was. In fact, it was one of her favorite sayings. You know, she would say that she was committed to telling it like it is, and she did that. It was certainly on display at the DNC in 1964 when she spoke, she spoke passionately. And I think about her as I reflect on just the importance of public testimony, the importance of telling your stories, you know, despite even you know if it's a painful story, but being able to shed the light on what you've gone through as an individual. What Hamer revealed is that it wasn't just about her. You know, when she spoke about the violence that she endured, she wasn't just talking about what she endured, she was talking about what so many other black people endured in the state of Mississippi and across the South. And so this idea of public testimony, I think, is such a significant political strategy, which remain relevant to this very day. If Hamer were here today, what do you think she would have to say? Or what do you think she'd focus on the most when it comes to addressing the issues that we're grappling with? Well, I think she would be very concerned about voter suppression in particular. I think that she would be concerned about you know the attacks on the Voting Rights Act. She would want all Americans to stand up and to do something. And she would say this often. She would say, "Don't sit around and wait. You know, God is not going to simply put it on your lap. You have to do something." And so she would call out the you know the injustices, and she would ask people to to not sit on the sidelines, not simply be spectators. But join the effort, join the struggle to make this nation better. Yes, that is definitely something that I can appreciate, and I know a lot of viewers out there as well. And so, when it comes to your book, are you essentially taking advantage of the fact that some COVID restrictions have been lifted? Are you getting out there, city tour? How are you getting the message out? 
Well, I have actually had a virtual tour. Um, and so, you know, one of the, I think, benefits of the virtual tour is that so many people who otherwise might not have been able to travel to a particular city uh, to, to see me have been able to hear. Um, and, you know, they've been able to listen to me from the comfort of their homes. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's bittersweet. You know, it's always great to be able to come face to face with, with folks. But at the same time, I think it's wonderful that the virtual space has made it possible for so many people to tune in. Indeed it has. Uh, and I know it's a whole new world out there, especially we're in this virtual space. And something I would love to hear about in terms of your research and writing, were there, maybe if you're comfortable saying, any stories that you maybe didn't include in your book, but you thought were so incredibly enlivening, interesting, or maybe even shocking as it concerned Hamer? No, you know, I, I tried my best uh, to pack as much information as possible, but I will say uh, that I, that you know, one of the things that I uh, wrote about in the book was uh, a little bit about Hamer's social life, and, and I wish I had said a lot more about it uh, because one of the things that I discussed is that Hamer loved to dance. And she would uh, go out whenever she had a chance. She would go out with her husband, Pap, um, and and they would just dance, you know. And they love to be around young people. They love to to go out whenever they could. Uh, and and I just think it would have been wonderful to shed more light on that. I, I'm certainly glad that I spoke a bit about it, but I would have loved to share more details about her social life, uh, so people could get a really good sense of the moments of joy in her life. Yeah, it sounds like she was a very well-rounded person and did enjoy living and wanted everyone else to have the opportunity to fully live as human beings, as citizens. And I definitely can't hate on that. And so when individuals are looking to learn more about your book or maybe during this holiday season to pick up your book for family member or friends, what is it that you want them to bear in mind in terms of how the book can really be impactful for their lives? Well, what's so great about the book, I think, is I try to write the book in a very accessible way. Um, and, and that's great because it means that, that folks who are trying to decide um, who they'll share the book with, quite frankly, uh, you can share it with the young people in your life. You can share it uh, with, with so many individuals. I think um, even you know at the high school level, at the college level, I think people will be able to take away something powerful in the book. I think it's certainly a book that will inspire anyone who reads it. It definitely sounds like it will be very inspiring. And so in terms of where we're going with Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's enduring message to America. If people want to catch you on your book tour, what is the next stop? Uh, on November the 30th, I'm having an event uh, at Harvard uh, at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. And I'm, I'll be in conversation uh, with one of my mentors, uh, who's just an amazing historian, uh, Khalil Mohammed. And we're going to talk about uh, this book. I'm looking forward to our conversation. That sounds excellent. And can any of the viewers sign up or is this an in-person yes. affair? Uh, it's virtual and it's open to everyone. Uh, so you're welcome to join us. You're also welcome to ask questions and participate in the conversation. Wonderful. And if they're looking to pick up your book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, where can they find that? Oh, well, the book is available everywhere books are sold. Uh, the book was published by Beacon Press, and so uh, you can access it uh, directly from their site. But it's also available uh, at every major retailer. Wonderful. And do you have a website? 
Yes, you can find me at KeishaBlaine.com and that's Blaine without an E. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us Keisha. That's Keisha Blaine, award-winning historian and author of the new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Thank you so much for joining us, Keisha. And we're super excited to read your book and also to see you continue to succeed. Thank you so much for having me.